Good morning. It's really nice to see you. Drum roll. Over the last five years, how much money has Kirkpatrick raised for the World Development Appeal? The answer to that, thanks to Gwen, wherever she is, is 20,000 pounds. And I don't know about you, I think that's an amazing amount of money. And I've been fortunate enough during my career to have visited Christian Aid projects funded by the World Development Appeal and tier fund projects. And I can say to you with real certainty that your support has really changed lives. In fact, some of the number crunchers in tier funds say when we do the sums, because we work through the local church and because we enable people primarily to use their own resources to find their solutions to their problems, it costs about 14 pounds to give someone the opportunity to work their way out of poverty and to experience God's love. And that means, off the back of an envelope, that that kind of support, 20,000 pounds, could have helped just under 1,500 people. And that's an extraordinary thing. And loud and clear, I want to start very clearly by saying thank you. That's just amazing. And I hope in the stories that I tell this morning that you get a flavor of the difference that your support has made. So I want to talk this morning about, from this passage, this amazing passage of Genesis 12, about Abraham's blessing. And I guess I've been on a journey with this passage over the last year. Christoph did a brilliant talk about this time last year, which really helped me to understand what God's redemptive purpose for our creation is. And it it really connected with me mentally. But then three weeks later, I was in Uganda visiting projects, a project which is actually funded by the World Development Appeal. And I saw how that church that I was visiting, had gone from an understanding of faith, of the gospel, which was solely spiritual, to an understanding of this promise of a holistic change, of redeeming the whole creation. And I'd seen how they'd gone from a church which was withering on the vine and dying, to a church which was part of a network of 90 churches, which were helping 9,000 people work their way out of poverty and experience God's love. And this morning what I want to do is I want to unpack a little bit of this passage with you and I want to share some of the stories of some of the people I met along the way. So, oh, Graham, would you scroll on to the next one? Great. So, the opening to this passage is a world gone wrong. By Genesis 12, the good world that God had created had gone wrong. Sin had entered the world and led to a radical breakdown in relationships between human beings and with God. And so you'll remember, for example, that during this period, jealousy had led Cain Cain to kill Abel, and pride and disobedience led people to build the Tower of Babel. They themselves were trying to be gods themselves. And I guess standing in Uganda in a church one Sunday about a year ago, I got a real sense of what the world gone wrong felt like. I was in a church which was mud walls, thatched roof, 200 people crowded in, and I asked them a question that I'm going to ask you. How many people here this morning, today, yesterday, had three meals? Hands up. How many people had three meals? In all honesty, I didn't. I had four. I had a sneaky bowl of crunchy nut cornflakes as I went to bed late last night. I normally have four meals in the day. But I asked them the same question. I said, how many people here had three meals? Not a single hand. 
and people craned their necks because they wanted to see who had three meals. I said, how many people here had two meals? And a couple of people out of 200 or 250 raised their hands. And I said, how many people here had one meal yesterday? And pretty much the whole church, the whole congregation raised their hands. That was them. And I have to say, as a speaker, it was the hardest talk I've ever got to do, had to do. How do you speak? How do a well-fed white Western Westerner speak to a congregation that are holding on to the edge of life? And one of the people that I met there was Margaret. And Margaret had had almost literally a nightmare. She had been a farmer with her husband. They'd owned five acres. They had a home and they had five children. And he got sick. And the worst possible thing happened because they mortgaged the farm to pay for his health bills. And he died. And she lost the farm. And the father of her children. And so she was left with a little tiny piece of land and scraping together an existence. And there was two moments in that conversation with Margaret that I will never forget. Because I said to her, Margaret, you have a meal a day. What is that meal? And with a degree of shock, she pointed to that plant and said, we boil that plant and we eat it at the end of the day. And in all honesty, I looked at that plant and I thought to myself, that plant has more in common with my hedge at the front of my house than it does in any way related to any kind of dinner that I ever have. And then I said to her, Margaret, I see you've got a little hut in behind. How does that work? Because her hut was kind of eight by six. It's kind of like, it's the size of my shed. And I said to her, you have five children, how does that work? And she said, there isn't space for my children to lie down on the ground. So I take my children, my children whose father has just died, and I take them to other people's houses every night because there isn't space for them to lie down in my house. And I don't know about you, but I just can't imagine how awful that is. The idea of having to take my children to somebody else's house is just so wrong. As I think of Margaret, I think of hedges and sheds. That's what it means to be that poor. And Margaret is one of the hundred and of the 870 million, the one in eight, that go to bed hungry. And the result of that is that seven million children, seven million children die every year from hunger and preventable disease. And I, I honestly, genuinely think, you may have a view on this, but I honestly, genuinely think that my great-grandchildren will look back on my generation and say, what were you doing? You are the most knowledgeable, powerful, interconnected, rich, wealthy generation there has ever been. What were you so busy doing? 
And they were particularly, I think, say to the church, and I say this to myself, they will point to the statistic which says there's been an economic appraisal, PwC, I think, David, that says it costs £730 billion to end extreme poverty, to end deaths by extreme poverty. That's how much, which sounds vast. But, but equally, the American church, and I'm sure you could add on the UK church on top of that, has enough wealth to pay that off 46 times. What that means for me is that God has given the church, let alone the wider world, way enough resources to stop that. And so I stood in that field with Margaret, and I thought to myself, this is a scandal. It is a scandal. So what does that mean? Our world has gone wrong. And into the middle of that world, God breaks in with a promise to Abraham. So God breaks into Abraham, an elderly, childless farmer and his wife, and says, into this world gone wrong in um, early Genesis, I want to bless you, and I want to make you into a blessing for the nations. And for me, there are two really salient points with that promise. The first is that that blessing is really holistic. In the beginning of the Bible, blessing is about fruitfulness, it's about abundance, it's about fullness. And we see that in Abraham's life. Spiritually, his relationship with God really flourishes from then on. He flourishes emotionally. He finds a family. He flourishes mentally and economically. He starts his own business, which becomes really successful. Now, to be clear, I'm not in any way saying that Abraham's life would now go well. The very next section of the passage is he goes to Egypt. Pharaoh fancies his wife, and Abraham has to pretend that his wife is his sister, so he's not killed. That is not an easy thing to do. But what I am saying is that with God's help, Abraham flourishes holistically despite the problems that he faces. So one is that Abraham's blessing is holistic. And secondly, that Jesus came to fulfill this promise. That this is a promise not just for Abraham, but I believe that this is a promise for us. And I say that because no less a person than Paul said it. In Galatians 3, Paul quotes Genesis 12 and says, God announced the gospel in advance to Abraham. All people will be blessed through you. Richard Buckham, as you can see, says that his understanding of the gospel is the gospel is that in Christ Jesus, the curse has been set aside and God's creative purposes for the blessing of his creation is established beyond any possibility of reversal. This is a promise which Jesus came to fulfill. Jesus came to do, in the words of our own mission statement, he came to redeem the whole of creation. And you know that the power of that theology really came alive to me. The next day, the day after I met Margaret, at that church service where everybody raised their hands. Because at the end of that church service, Margaret came to the front and came to faith. And that was a really powerful moment, quite an emotional moment. There are um, vulnerabilities with it for her, but it was an emotional moment. 
But that theology tells me that yes, God is interested in Margaret and passionately wants to connect with her. But if he wants to redeem the whole of her, then he passionately believes that physically she should have enough food for her children. That emotionally she, has the, she should have the dignity to be able to feed them and give them a house and a home. That he's interested in her education, in her health care, and is interested in her cultural standing as a woman, which in Uganda is really poor. And is passionately interested, as we see in the prophets, in challenging the economic structures that keep her really poor. That this is a passage, this blessing for her means that God wants to bless her in her fullness. That week, I met a man called Sam. Sam is the man on your left-hand side with the stick. And the churches that we are visiting, which have been funded by the World Development Appeal through tier funds, as I said, 10 years ago, were literally withering on the vine. They were closed in. They weren't interested in the community. They had a view that simply they just needed to preach the gospel and people would come, people would come to faith and it wasn't really working. And literally, the community was dying around them. And with our help, we helped the pastor and the church to go through a program that helped them to understand this passage and lots of other passages like them, and began to help them to see that the church's role was there to bless the entire community in all of its fullness. And having done that, we then helped them to work on developed skills so they could do that in the wider community. And Sam was someone that they met along the way. And Sam's life had been really tough. He was HIV positive. He was disabled. He earned enough to feed his children two days a month. He was scraping by. In fact, he told us that he felt nervous when he woke in the morning because he didn't know how he was going to get enough food for the day. But the church who'd gone through this program ran a little study. And the study, out of the study, Sam said he learnt that he was loved. And he had never thought of that before because he'd seen himself as someone who was HIV positive and someone who was disabled and someone who was really poor. He realized that he was loved by God. And he realized too, with the church's help, that even though he was incredibly poor, that God had given him some resources. How they described it was, they said, what is in your hand, Sam? There is something in your hand to help you to experience God's blessing. And what was in his hand was literally in his hands. Because although he was disabled, as you can see from his legs, his legs are kind of withered. His shoulders are really strong and he had developed some really good carpentry skills. And with his carpentry skills, he began to earn a bit of money and he began to plant trees. So scroll on 10 years and I arrive and meet him. And there were two things that were, there was something that was really good. And there was something that was knock me over. I will never forget this ever again as I live. So the thing that was really good was we arrived in his compound and he had a flourishing orange tree business. He had used his carpentry skills to begin to plant orange trees and we arrived in and there he was, a flourishing business. He could feed his children. He was employing other people and they were able to feed their children. He even was able to help Godfrey, who is a local orphan, and he was funding him his education, and Godfrey was just about to go off to finish a diploma. That is a really good piece of work. 
But then from out under his seat, he produced this. And we kind of scrabbled around and looked at it and couldn't quite work out what it was. And he said this amazing thing. He said, Tim, the church taught me that I am to experience God's blessing and I am to bless others. And I realized that my business was beginning to go really well and we were beginning to do better, but I realized that there's loads of other people who are HIV positive in the community and I realized that I wanted to bless them. So what did this poor, semi-illiterate, disabled, HIV positive farmer do? He set up his own charity, helping 62 other people who are HIV positive. They have a little savings scheme to help them whenever they have health problems, as you obviously do when you're HIV positive. They have a little scheme to help them set up little businesses. And those 62 people are doing so well in their community that they went back to Sam and they said, Sam, we have realized that we have been blessed by what you have done for us. We want to bless others. How do we do that? What is the thing that we could do? And the thing that they have ended up doing is they have gone back through the church and they are doing talks to raise awareness about HIV in their community because who better is there to raise HIV awareness than someone who is HIV positive themselves? Sam was someone, I believe, who was part of our world gone wrong. He was one of the 870 million. But with support from people like you, he has been blessed. So physically, he's able to feed his children. Emotionally, he's the dignity of being able to run his own business. Environmentally, he has created this amazing environment where there are trees and there is flourishing life. Culturally, he is challenging discrimination in his area against people who are HIV positive, and economically, he is generating wealth in his community way beyond him. And spiritually, he is someone that knows that he is loved and is sharing that in the wider community. And in those churches that we've funded, we've funded 90 churches who were absolutely struggling, struggling just to keep going. Ten years on, those 90 churches are helping 9,000 people to work their way out of poverty like Sam and experience God's love. And that's just the people like Sam. We project that because each of those people will help their families and also employ other people, we actually reckon that those 90 churches are helping 81,000 people to work their way out of poverty. That is the power of people understanding blessed to be a blessing. And that takes me back to what I said at the start. Because we work through local churches and because we enable people to use their own resources, our number crunchers tell us that it costs about 14 pounds to make that kind of impact for someone like Sam. That's how far it goes. So, And I guess around the world, that is what Tear Fund is about. That we have a vision of helping 50 million people like Sam through a worldwide network of 100,000 churches. We're five years in, and so far we've helped 67,000 churches to get an understanding of what their role is and what the purpose is of their church to reach out and transform their communities holistically. 
And we've helped 15 million people like Sam to take long-term positive steps and to make a change. So, we've seen a world in need. We've seen something about Abraham's blessing being for Abraham and for us. How do we respond to that? How do we live that out? It's really striking that when you look at Abraham's life, there's two things that he seems to do brilliantly. He listens and he obeys. In fact, the word most often associated with Abraham in the Old Testament is the word obey. And often this costs him. He leaves home and he travels to Egypt because God calls him to do that. He then leaves Egypt because again God calls him to do that. And when I was in Uganda... And meeting people like Sam and Margaret, it struck me how well they listened. They were open to developing their understanding of what faith meant to them. To develop an understanding of blessing the entire world. And then they had this brilliant thing where they kept saying, what's in your hand? What is the thing that God has given you? And genuinely, a somewhat staggering thing for me, was the realization that Sam set up his charity not whenever he was completely sorted, but whenever his children, whenever he was, had enough food to feed his children two meals a day. Not three, not four. In all honesty, I wouldn't have done what he did. He moved in my head from being a kind of victim who's doing well to somebody who was an extraordinary disciple. There's something there for me about being able to use the thing in our hand now. What is it that we can do now? And I guess I think that there's something, there's an, there's an extraordinary thing in our hands at the moment. There's an extraordinary opportunity. Because as we listen to God speak about renewing our creation, there's this amazing opportunity that literally next month, the world's most powerful leaders come to Northern Ireland, to our backyard. And I think that we have a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to say to them, there is enough food for everyone, but not everyone has enough food. And that's modern, clever communication language for saying, we are blessed, let's bless a world in pieces. This is an opportunity for us to say that. And in particular, we are saying to them, we want all the G8 countries to give enough aid and to focus it on children who are dying. We want poor farmers to be stopped, to be forced off their lands. And we want to ensure that developing world countries get the tax that they're owed, especially from multinational companies. And finally, to force developing world countries and big corporations to be honest and open about the actions that they take to stop people getting enough food. Yes, we want to give aid, but as importantly, we want to enable developing world countries to use the money that's already there to focus it on the poorest of the poor. This, I believe, is a brilliant way for us to be blessed or to, to show that we are blessed and to bless others. So how do we do that? Do you know the way in church they say, could you take your phones out and could you turn them off? Genuinely, could you take your phones out and turn them on? 
because again and again in the Bible, we see people simply not listening to God. We see the story of the prophets and of Jesus himself of people not opening up to what God says. And one of the things that I've really realized is the importance of creating space for God to speak into us. And so in the run-up to the G8 summit, we're inviting people to set their alarms for lunchtime, for 108, to remember the one in eight people that go to bed hungry. And we believe that it's an opportunity to allow God to break in to what we are doing at our lunchtime. And for us to pray, maybe for the leaders, maybe for what Tear Fund and Christian Aid is doing, and maybe for ourselves. And invite you over the next four weeks to set your alarm and allow God to break into what you are doing and to pray for this important issue. We're about to have lunch later on. I would love nothing more than at 108, there's a cacophony of alarms going off as God breaks into our busyness to say, let's make sure that we focus on this. So one thing we can do is to pray. Another thing we can do is in your pews, you will see that there is a postcard to David Cameron. There are thousands of people already who have signed that card and very simply saying, we want you, you're doing well, but we want you to get all the other G8 leaders to tackle this scandal. If I tell you that 20 years ago, 12 million children died, but because of campaigns like Make Poverty History and Drop the Debt, that figure is now down to seven. That will tell you a tale that things are actually changing. This is something that we can genuinely change in our world today. So I invite you, as I am speaking, to fill in your card and to hand it in at the end of the service of the lunch, and we will make sure it will add to the thousands of others around Northern Ireland and the UK that are speaking out. So sign the card in your seat and send it to David. And finally, having prayed, having asked others to change, most challengingly of all, what is it that we, we can do? And very obviously, a very simple thing that you can do is to come to the meal today and to give what you can. Or if you can't come to the meal, to use the envelopes that are in the pews. And as you do that, I'd really invite you to think not so much of how much you're given, but given that statistic of 14 points, how many people do you feel that you could help? That, for me, feels like a really good question. So today, the thing is, give to the meal as generously as you can. And that money will go into the World Development Appeal and will go to Christian Aid and the Tear Fund. But it's really striking to me that what God says is that there's an expectation of that we build these issues into the rhythm of our lives. Again and again and again and again, God talks about poverty. And a really simple way to do that is to give regularly. Seven pounds a month can help six people like Sam to work their way out of poverty. It's best for them. It's best for organizations like Christian Aid and Tear Fund because it's the most efficient way that we can operate and it helps us to plan. And for you, it allows you to connect in and to follow a community and see the difference you make. So if, you wanna, if you're interested in doing that, building it into the rhythm of your lives, then I invite you to simply tick the box and someone will give you a call and chat to you about what works for you. So I've told you two stories this morning. Sam is a story where somebody 
like you in a service probably like this realized that they were blessed and wanted to share that with others. And 10 years ago, they gave some money and some prayers. And as a result, Sam and his church and his wider community was blessed. And now he is flourishing. And he, in turn, is blessing others. Sam is the story that I'd love you to keep in your head this week, that your support changes lives and brings the kingdom. I've also told you the story of Margaret, a story of a woman who's eating a hedge, who's sleeping in my shed, the equivalent of, who's just come to faith, but is incredibly vulnerable. And she now needs help to experience full life. And there are millions, millions of people like her. I feel really strongly that God is saying to us in Northern Ireland at this moment, I have blessed you. Now bless people like Margaret by praying at 108, listening to what I'm saying, by signing that card and speaking out and by giving today and regularly. May God continue to bless you. And may we all learn how to experience God's blessing and how to bless others like Abraham. Amen.